0: Uh, we had an awesome Sunday last weekend with Earl Marshall here with his, with his wife Brenda, our regional director of the GCC, and uh, I think his message is still reverberating in our hearts. We're challenged through that, and uh, they want to know that they really, uh, they want you guys to know that they really enjoyed their time here with us. They really felt loved by all of you, and so take that to heart that God is working in you as well. Today we're going to be looking at Colossians versus Uh, Chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, we're returning to our verse-by-verse exposition of this book, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And in fact, we're going to be jumping into one of the most celebrated sections in all of the New Testament. Uh, This is like the highest Christology that you can even look at in Scripture, everything in a small selection of verses. There's four verses here that we're going to be looking at, and they are so jam-packed with some of the the most beautiful, most highest, most glorious theology of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's going to describe to us who Jesus is and why it's so incredibly important that we do know who he is. So we want want God to blow our minds today. We want him to, to decimate our understanding and to elevate our thoughts about Him. You know, the, the bigger God is in our eyes, the better off that we are. Because the bigger God is, the smaller we become, and, and we have the right perspective of His abundant grace. So, who is this Jesus that we proclaim? Who is He? Who is this, this man that is also God that we sing about? Who is Jesus? And do you know him? And when I'm asking, do you know him? I'm not asking, are you saved? I'm asking, do you know Jesus? Do you know about him? Do you know him personally? And what do you know about him? What do you know about Christ? And why is this reality of who Jesus is so vitally important? Why is it so important? Friends, Jesus And who he is, is the most critical, most divisive, most glorious question that can ever be answered. And it's the answer between death and life. It's everything. The beauty is is that God never leaves us guessing. His word is sufficient. And he gives us the answer to the question of who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate one. Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is the supreme one. And Jesus is first. And as we discover how he is first, why he is first, we're also going to be asking ourselves, is he first? Is he first in our life? And if he isn't first, why isn't he first in our life? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We come to you weak and needy this morning. We come to you in need of grace. We thank you, Lord, that, that you woke us from, from our beds this morning, that you gave us a new day, you renewed your mercy upon us, and you lavished us again with the grace of Jesus Christ this morning. You gave us a new day to come and worship you. And Lord, we are grateful. May today be about Jesus Christ. May it be about the eternal Son. May we lift him high in our minds and in our hearts. And may you do your work through the exposition of your word on our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask you to be working mightily in our lives today. We know that you work with your word, that you wrote the word to us. And we ask for you to press it into our hearts and transform us. Help us to understand it. Help me to preach it. And we ask that you would get your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in these first 14 verses of Colossians that we've already studied, uh, we've witnessed the Apostle Paul. Uh, He had his tender greeting towards the Colossian church. It was a a greeting of encouragement to this this young, faithful church. And then we joined him also in in fervent prayer, asking for continued knowledge and, and wisdom and for God to produce fruit. And then we received the command the last time we were in Colossians, to be fueling our thankfulness with the realities of our eternal salvation that is only found in him. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on in our text this morning. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, So this morning, we want to learn about Jesus as being first. Jesus is preeminent because he is supreme. And there is nothing and no one greater than Jesus Christ in all of history, in all of the universe. And today, we get this amazing privilege to to gaze at him through the pages of Scripture, to stand in awe of who he is, to behold Christ as first and as foremost And we're going to see this in three uh, awe-inspiring truths. And the first one is this. I need to behold Christ as first in my life because he is preeminent over humanity. He's preeminent over humanity. He's the perfect reflection and heir of God. Starting in verse 15, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. As we can recall from our study of the book of Colossians, Paul was writing to a church that was facing false teaching. And he's addressing this false teaching right here. There was was false teaching coming into the church, and uh, many scholars have debated exactly what this false teaching was. What we know is clear is this is that people were trying to remove the focus on Jesus Christ, trying to to lower him in the eyes of the people and to elevate other practices as well. We see some insight into this starting in chapter 2 in verse 8. If you just look over, you'll see that. Paul warns the Colossians. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, And not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so, what we can see here is that this false teaching was was being influenced by outside ideas, outside philosophy at that time. We also see that there was some legalism, Uh, there was some Jewish background here that would have been imposing some return to some of the Jewish practices. And we also can see that there is is worship of of the spiritual realm. It could be angels or or whatever it may be, but there was an emphasis on on something else, Jesus plus something else. And one of the theories of of this false teaching is that the the Colossians were experiencing an early form of Gnosticism, which uh, basically teaches that the spiritual realm that comes from God is good, but the material world is evil. That's some of the philosophy of the day. So some of this, we believe, was infiltrating the church. Therefore, the idea of Jesus being both God and man, so being both spiritual and physical, couldn't happen. There's just no way that God would be a part of of something evil. That's some of the false teaching that we believe was, was happening. And they would say that Jesus himself was not really a man, If he was somewhat godly, then he could only just be an emanation of God. But Paul says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul begins heralding this this mind-blowing truth that Jesus Christ is both 100% God and 100% man. Now that only works out in God's math, right? That doesn't work in our math. But it's a mystery. We just sang about that mystery. And you see, these, these false teachers were questioning the most incredible miracle of all history. And it's a miracle that is foundational to our faith. Wayne Grudem says this about it. It is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite Omnipotent, eternal Son of God would become a man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. When you think about it, it is, it's greater than creation that God himself became a man. And so let me ask you this morning, when you think about the reality that God, the eternal Son of God, became a man, does that move your heart? Does that cause your mind to just kind of explode thinking about it? I think sometimes in the Christian circles, we we know this truth, we say this truth to each other, and it becomes somewhat of a normal thing. We don't sit and dwell and And think about these things deeply, that God became a man. And this is extremely important for us. We have to get our minds wrapped around uh, this. This is foundational to us. There have been countless attacks about who Jesus is throughout all church history. From day one to now, people are attacking who Jesus is and attacking his deity, and attacking his humanity. And the reality of these two things means everything. And so we see Paul defending the truth, and he defends it with two key concepts here to affirm Christ's humanity and deity. Paul says first, Jesus is the image or likeness, reflection of the invisible God. So image of God. Where have you guys heard that before? Where have you heard the idea of image of God in scriptures? Genesis, yeah? Very good, awesome. And does it matter? Does this idea of the image of God matter? I think it does. It's a big deal in the eyes of God. So back in Genesis 2, when God was creating the universe, remember, he was was forming the universe, forming the earth, forming the waters, and then he fills the planet, fills the universe, fills our earth with animals and and birds and fish. And then it's time to create the pinnacle of, of his creation, which is mankind. He says this in Genesis 2, verses 26, let us make man in our image. I love that there's some Trinitarian language there, a plurality in the Godhead in the first verses of the Bible. But he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then into verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is the first time that we see these, this image of God language being used in Scripture. And so we see here that, that, that mankind, men and women, are distinguished from all the rest of creation. And the defining distinguishment is that they are reflectors of God. They are image bearers of God. We are made in God's image, in his likeness. We are his representatives here on earth, and that was the plan. But then we had a major problem, right? One chapter later, we decided to rebel against our Lord. And his image in us was darkened. It was marred. Man chose to sin. We chose to rebel against the Lord. We shamed the image of God by our sin. I think we also need to remember that we need to own this ourselves. Sometimes we look at Adam and Eve and we say, what were they thinking? Right? They, they could see God, the very presence of God with them every day. And yet they chose to turn away from him. I wouldn't have done that. That's not the truth. We have to remind ourselves. If we were there, we would have done the exact same thing. Remember that if we were in their place, we would have sinned as well. We own that sin. As Adam and Eve sinned, we also continue to sin. We inherited their unrighteousness. They're bent towards sin. And we continue to sin. We are responsible for it. And we are poor reflectors of God's image. And we needed help right? We need help. We need help today. And God sent that help in Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds us of that. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. As Jesus was completely holy and sinless throughout his life, he prevailed as such. He prevailed as holy. There was no sin in him. He reflected the glory and the holiness of God perfectly. He was the ultimate human, living without sin, reflecting the face of God. We often say in the church, where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus was the ultimate Adam. Jesus himself said this about himself, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Right? So if you would have seen Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I am the exact imprint of his nature. I reflect him perfectly. And so in Christ, the invisible God became visible. And in the eyes of God the Father, Jesus stands as preeminent. He is the preeminent man over all mankind. This is so important for us to wrap our minds around. And it's the key to truly understanding our salvation. So although you and I are still pale, fallen, fragmented reflectors of God's glory, Jesus was and he still is the perfect image of God. Just think about Christ right now. He took on human form. He took on our flesh. And he exists right now for eternity in a human body. A perfected, glorious human body. And he's still reflecting the glory of God as the ultimate man. Then Paul says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this word firstborn doesn't mean that he was created. Many false teachings have sp- sprung off this verse saying that Jesus was created. The-, the word protokos here really does not mean that in this context. It has everything to do with Jesus' rank as the-, as the son of God. He's the ultimate son of God and son of man. And he is the only one worthy of inheriting what God gives. That's the idea of him being an heir. John 14.9 says, We beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten son from the Father. The same idea here. It's not that he was created. It's that he is first. He is the first son. He is the inheritor of God's kingdom. And we inherit God's kingdom when we are found in him. He is the only one worthy of the inheritance. We are not worthy of that. We are sinners. We are fallen. But the beauty is that in his gospel, he calls us to die to ourselves, to be raised up in him and to partake in that kingdom. We've already seen that previous. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his glorious light. We get to inherit what he inherits. It's an amazing, amazing reality. The son obeyed his father perfectly. And throughout history, church history especially, the the humanity in Jesus, the humanity and deity of Christ has always been under attack. We see that here in Colossians. We see it in the 4th century with Arianism coming in, basically teaching that Christ uh, Christ couldn't be uh, a man or couldn't be God. And right up today with, with Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witness uh, belief as well, they clearly state that, that Jesus was created, but he was not created. He was the eternal Son of God, pre-existent God as well. So what we do with Jesus' humanity means Everything. And what we do with his deity and his humanity separates the wheat from the chaff when it comes to right teaching. The true church knows that Jesus is first. The true church knows that he is preeminent, that he is the perfect reflection and heir of God. But why does that matter today to us? Why does that matter today to us in this room? We all believe this, right? We pray that we all believe this. We believe that he was a man. We believe that he lived the perfect life for us, that he died the death that we deserve. We believe the gospel. But why does this matter to us right now? In a room full of Christians, why does this matter? 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared To make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, the hope that is in you. So, friends, if we claim to know Jesus as our Savior, we have to know the truth about Him. It's one thing to just say, I've received Christ, but I need to study Him. I need to come to know Him for myself and for others. We have to know it deep in our hearts. We have to answer this world that is throwing questions at us, and we have to proclaim his truth into the ends of the earth. So as the Colossian church, you know, they were facing false teaching about Christ. We also have to know who Christ is so that we can defend him. As we're all on mission here together, uh, these questions are going to come up all the time. As we push into the city, push into uh, people's lives and start to proclaim the news of Jesus Christ, we are going to get questions about who he is. And if we are Christians, which means that we are little Christ's in him, we have to defend him. We have to explain who he is. We have to explain to the world, this is God and he is, was also man and he came to die for you. And so how are you doing? Are you knowing him? Do you know these things about him? Are you ready to proclaim that truth to the world? That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We need to go out into this world because the world is trying to earn its way into heaven or whatever eternity they're hoping for. And we have the news that there is one man, one God-man who went before us and he earned it For you. And so we need to throw ourselves at God's word. We need to be reminding ourselves daily. We need to be preaching this truth to ourselves as well that we couldn't do this, we couldn't earn salvation. Jesus had to come and live and die for us. God made the way through the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. And this should produce in us selfless, God-honoring, Christ-exalting worship. Because we know the reality of what would have happened apart from that. But Christ stepped in. He is preeminent over humanity. He is the ultimate human. And there is no other perfect reflection in all of the universe, in all of history, but Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Of all creation. So not only is he firstborn of all creation, he is preeminent over the creation. I need to behold Christ as first in my life because he is preeminent over creation. He is sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. Just look down at verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's so much right there. Again, that should just blow us away with who he is. Do you feel the gravity of what Paul is trying to say here? In the face of these false teachers, he's trying to diminish their ideas and to exalt who Christ really is. He is their creator. It's like he's saying, forget your puny man-centered ideas and philosophies. This Jesus that we proclaim, he is the one that even gives you the ability to think these false ideas. And although you're wanting to tear him down and to lower him, To something that he is not. Jesus is your creator. Jesus is the source. He is the agent. He is the purpose of all creation. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. And that's why Paul says, by him all things were created. All things. So can I ask you what Paul is asking here? What is he saying? What did Jesus create? When he says all things, what does he mean by that? Maybe maybe Gavin's got his Greek New Testament here today. All things means all things, everything, the whole thing, from the smallest particle that can be seen through the most powerful microscope in the world, to the largest star cluster that can be seen with the most powerful telescope. He's created it all. None of it has escaped his powerful hands. Well, back in 2012, I don't know if you guys remember this, but all the news channels kind of fired up this news story that they discovered the God particle. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Uh, So this happened at the, I'm hoping I'm saying this right, the Hadron Particle Collider in Switzerland. I don't know if you've seen this laboratory. This thing is massive, worth billions and billions of dollars. Hundreds of countries involved in this. This massive laboratory, it's a 27-kilometer tunnel underneath the Earth. I think some places it's like 250 meters under under the ground. It's a multi-massive billion-dollar underground laboratory. And this is where these nuclear scientists are gathering. And they're wanting to to discover and to study particles of matter. And they want to do this in order to understand the fundamentals of physics, some of the questions that haven't been answered, some of the theories that are out there about quantum mechanics and and physics. And then, in 2012, they discovered what they believe uh, is this particle. And it was nicknamed the God particle. It's actually called the the Higgs boson, I think it's called. Um, And when they discovered this, one of the physicists said this. He said, we think a particle like the Higgs boson was actually like a matchstick that sparked and set off this cosmic explosion, which created everything we see around us, including the Earth and even us. And so you can see the... The reason they called this the God particle is they're looking for something other than God to explain the creation of the universe. They want to explain some natural process that happened. You ever wonder what God's thinking sometimes when when we've got our little instruments and we're studying the world? What he's thinking about our thoughts as we're trying to come up with all kinds of ideas as we study his creation. You know, one time science was actually called the handmaiden of the church. It was actually uh, meant to proclaim what God has created. It was never meant to detract. But science has definitely changed today because the world, the flesh, and Satan are trying so hard to remove God from the big picture. They want us to join them in this suppression of the truth that we were created. They want us to believe a lie. They want us to have faith in their theories. They want us to have faith against all the screaming evidence that is in creation. I mean, the very first sentence in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 42.5 says, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Psalm 8.3. The psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. As we look at creation, it's so clear. In fact... When we choose to not believe that it was created, we are actually suppressing the truth. God has made it clear to us that He has created this world. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, it's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Friends, the Bible is so clear and it makes so much sense. We are not a cosmic accident. You're not a mistake. Jesus created all of it. You know, even even in the past year, our our governor general and our prime minister have kind of scoffed at Christians and those of different faiths who believe in creation. And uh, sometimes that can cause us to be angry or upset at them. And it should a little bit, right? That, that goes against the very fundamentals of our faith. It's easy to get upset or angry, but we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for our leaders in our country. We need to let the reality that they don't know the truth break our hearts. They need to know Jesus as their sovereign creator. He is the creator of all things. "'Visible and invisible,' it says, "'whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. "'And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together.'" Paul leaves nothing out of the realm of Christ's creative power, not physical, not spiritual, not demonic or angelic. All of it is his, and he holds it all together.'" Nothing exists or would continue to exist apart from Christ's power holding all things together. If he let go of this universe, it would blow apart into oblivion and cease to exist. And what do we say to that? We say that is our God. That is our Christ. We get to worship him. And he died for us. That's your God. He is preeminent over all creation. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. So how do we respond to this? What do we do with this knowledge? Let me ask you this. What do you do when your favorite hockey team, or in Robert's case, a soccer team, scores the goal and wins the the, the cup, whatever the, the big challenge is? What do you do with that when that happens? You worship, you, you jump up and praise and joy that, that they won. What do you do when, when your child uh, gets first place in some kind of a recital or a contest? You jump up and you rejoice that, that they have won. How much more ought we be rejoicing and celebrating in our Creator? Because it's all about Him, it's all for Him, it's all through Him. It's all about Him. And then how much more should we be compelled to be be sharing that news with the world? And how much more ought we be believing and trusting that he's got everything in his hands and it's all under his control and we don't need to worry? How much more should we cast our cares Upon Him, How much more should we plead and pray, asking the one who is the creator and controller of all things? How much more should we be diving into his word to know him and to love him and to serve him for who he is? Jesus is preeminent over all creation. And so we worship our creator. Your God cares for you. He loves you so much. That in all of his majesty, in all of his power, all of his greatness, he came for you. And so we rejoice. Your God, who is first over humanity, first over creation, is also first over the church. He is preeminent over the church. He is the superior shepherd and resurrected founder of the church. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And the clincher is this, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent. That's the whole theme of Colossians. That in all things our eyes would be set on him. He would be first, he would be foundational, he would be foremost. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he rules over the church. He is our great shepherd over the church. And this shepherd is not idle. Don't take his sitting as being idle. While he is sustaining the universe, Jesus is leading and he is building his church. And just like creation, without Jesus at the helm, without Him steering the church, it would all blow apart. He is the one that holds this together. He is our great shepherd. We have elders' meetings every week, and uh, we really aim at trying to remember that we are elders, we are shepherds under a great shepherd. When we pray for you as the church, we acknowledge as pastors that we are under the great shepherd. We are under his authority. He who is feeding. He who is tending. He who is protecting and caring for his flock. And he's leading his flock somewhere. He's leading you somewhere. He's leading you on his mission. He's leading you in holiness. He's leading you in love. You've got a God who is active, and he is going somewhere, and he's taking you with him. And his mission is the church. So as you and I are all members of of his body, we're all members of the church, Paul says Jesus is the head. He's the brains. He's the direction. He's the whole operation. And without him as the head, we are completely useless. We are without direction. We are limp. We are lifeless. We are dead. Last week, a college student in Connecticut discovered a frog jumping around, I think in a, in a forest somewhere. But this frog didn't have a head. Anybody see that? A headless frog. Now, so I I watched the video. There's this frog jumping around, and it looks like he has no head. But in all reality, as a scientist got looking closer, he just had a deformed head. There was something wrong. He was diseased. He had a small hole for a mouth. He didn't have eyes. But when you watch this video, it looks like everything is going fine with this frog. He actually looks pretty healthy except he's missing his head. And the truth is this, is without a head, a living body cannot exist. If that frog didn't have a head with a brain, he could not be hopping around. And so it is with the church, without Christ as our head, we are lifeless, we are dead. He is the most important function in this body. The head feeds us, the head sustains us, the head leads us. The head cares for us. When you think about the body, the brain um, receives the signals of pain in all the members. He protects us. And so what we see in the Colossian church, these false teachers, they're attacking the head of the church. And Paul is teaching that Christ is the head. These false teachers are teaching that Christ isn't enough. But we who are faithful need to remember that Christ is enough, that he is the head, he is the focus, he is the foundation, that Jesus doesn't need anything else. Jesus is superior. We can't add to him, we can't take away from him. He is our superior shepherd. Even when we're going to experience threats from the church, like the Colossian church, We need to remember that Jesus is the head of our church. We may experience threats from within the church. We need to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. And sometimes you know church is messy. Churches split. Churches have quarrels. But even all through that, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the church local. He's the head of the church universal. When you think of, all the denominations of faithful churches around the world, this is not out of God's realm of authority and power. The beauty is is that Jesus continues to build his church in spite of us. And it couldn't be in better hands. He knows exactly what he's doing. Because the church is everything to Christ. The church is Christ's bride, The church is made up of regenerate believers, those who have been born again. And we see here Paul talking about Christ being born again. Christ was the first to be born again. He broke the mold. He laid the foundation. He began the New Testament through his resurrected life. The true church is made up of those who were born again in the path of Jesus Christ. It's made up of what we call regenerated Christians, regenerate people, born again, made alive. And Jesus was the first to be resurrected. And the purpose is this, is that in everything he might be preeminent. That Christ would be regarded in the church as everything, as ultimate, that we would be Christ-centered, that, we, that he would be the hub of our wheel, that everything, our source of everything would come from him, would be about him, would be for him, would be through him. It's all for him, that in all things he would be preeminent, that we wouldn't be satisfied with just gathering together as people, that we wouldn't just be satisfied with having fun together and eating food together. We pray that Christ would be, would be tasted and seen, that he is the best, that he is first, that our success and progress would be measured not in other things, but in our delight in him alone. That is our measure of success. Are you delighting in Christ today? Paul is saying that, that this Jesus is the whole reason that we exist that he is the highly exalted one. And he's saying that our hearts need to pant for him and for him alone, that we need to desire him alone, that we would have our minds set on him alone and not ourselves, that we would trust him fully, that we would cry out, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, that we would behold his glory in all that we do, that even if times are hard, and we face the pressures of outside influence, if we we face threats of division or dissension, whatever it may be, persecution, that we would find our way back to our first love, the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the centerpiece of all history. He is the centerpiece of the Bible. His cross stands right in the center. It's everything. He is the climax and so it should go with our life. As the body of Christ, even though sometimes it feels like the whole universe might be against us, maybe we're battling some sin, maybe, maybe that, old, that old familiar sin has, has risen its ugly head again, and we wondered, God, what are you doing? I want to be over this. And Paul reminds you that Jesus is over this. He is the head of the church He is the firstborn from the dead. You know, we can sometimes feel alone in this world. We feel sometimes that God is so far away. Sometimes we're so ashamed of of our sin. We feel that God wants nothing to do with us sometimes. But is that the truth? Is that the truth? Has God left us? God never leaves his church. He never leaves his bride. He is always right by her side. And he is always right by your side. If you are his, believe that. Run to him. Run to him. He has not left you. His arms are always opened wide for his children, ready and willing to forgive, ready and willing to love, to lavish his grace Upon you because he is the preeminent shepherd. He cares for you, he loves you. And so, how about us this morning? Is Christ preeminent in our life? Is he first? Does he have first place in my heart? Does he have first place in your heart? Remember this, Jesus is first because he is first. He is preeminent because he is supreme. There is nothing and no one greater than Jesus Christ. If he is first over humanity, if he is first over his creation, if he is first over the church, he should be first in my heart. Well, I believe... Uh, We can answer the question of of why isn't Jesus first in my heart in in a few different ways. Sometimes we don't have room in our hearts. Our hearts are so jammed up with all kinds of different desires that come first. You name it, it can take place of Christ pretty easy. We have secondary desires, sinful desires, self-centered desires, worldly desires, Sometimes Jesus is more like last place. He's the last thought. He's not our first thought. Sometimes we only pursue him if he fits the occasion or when we feel like it or if we want to use him for what he gives, right? Now I need you because I'm here. Jesus can't be first in your heart if your heart is a stone. So if you are an unbeliever, if you are unregenerate, Christ cannot be first in your heart. It was promised from old that, that uh, in Ezekiel that Christ was going to come and remove the heart of stone and he would put his spirit within us. And so if that's you this morning, if, if you're not sure that you are his, it's time to turn. Today is the day of salvation. Turn. Christ will remove that stone. Turn from your sin, trust in him. He will remove the stone and he will give you a heart of flesh, a regenerate heart of flesh that will give you the ability to believe in him and then he will be first in your life. It says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will make you alive, alive like him, resurrected from your spiritual death just like him. Perhaps Jesus felt more like first place a long time ago in your life, right? That was when I was first saved. He was everything to me. But that was a long time ago. That's kind of worn off. It's not as shiny anymore. That was a season in my life. Maybe you feel far from him again. Perhaps you're giving yourself to some sin, and somehow you feel ashamed. You're struggling, you feel alone in despair. Perhaps you've, you've stopped giving yourself to God's word on a regular basis. You're not feasting upon his truth. It could be many things. Perhaps you've stopped praying. There's lots of things that, that can cause our heart to turn from the Lord. We have to remember that Christ, if you are truly his, he has not left you. We need to remember the truth, that he is first, he is preeminent, and his preeminence does not change based on my situation, changed on my feelings, changed on my emotions. Christ does not leave me. Jesus is first over humanity. He is first over creation. He is first over the church, and he desires to be first in our hearts. That's his rightful place. That's his throne. He wants you to know that none of your longings, none of your joys, none of your satisfaction can be found anywhere else but in him and in him alone as preeminent. You will only ever be fully satisfied in Christ. So let's remember some of the things that that we learned today. I need to behold Christ as first in my life because he is preeminent over humanity. He is preeminent over the creation. He is preeminent over the church. And he needs to be preeminent over my heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we hear here in your word. That this is a truth that that we don't don't make up. We We don't create this ourselves. This is an objective reality that Jesus Christ is first over all things and He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. That in all things He would be preeminent. Father, we struggle with this. We struggle with Christ being first. It's easy to say, make Christ first. It's another thing to follow through and that's why we need Your Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit, to empower us to follow, empower us to worship him as number one. We need your word to be guiding us more and more, to replacing lies that are in our head and to be putting truth in place. Would you do this work in us? Would you help us to have your son as first? Because he is first. We pray this in Christ's name.